Good morning, church. Those of you uh, I haven't had the, the pleasure of meeting, my name is Rusty, and they're letting me preach for a few more Sundays before they kick me out. It's my fourth last Sunday before a three-month break. So I just got to use as many words as I can, right, these last few, last few Sundays, going on sabbatical here in about a month's time. Uh, looking forward to a break, but also kind of starting to feel a bit of the sadness of not being here Sunday mornings for a period of time, because I really enjoy this. I highlighted my week to be with you, worship God with you. If, uh, if it appears like I may be moving a little more slowly, gingerly, maybe looks like I'm wincing once in a while, it's because I am. I, um, I foolishly agreed to uh, be goalie for uh, the shootout, Pucks versus Pastors, yesterday, and then play a game of hockey uh, for about two hours last night. And um, so I found muscles I didn't know I had, and I hurt here, and I hurt right here. I hurt here. I hurt right there. I hurt here. That's just some of the places. And some of you in the room here, you did that hurt to me. <laughs> and you know who you are, and God forgive you. God forgive you. You're one of them right there, Buster. <sighs> Lots of fun. So if you uh, have been tracking with us over the last few weeks, you know that we are on a journey in this series that's taking us to Easter Sunday, where week by week, we're looking at one of the seven statements of Jesus from the cross. Because if you look at the four accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find that in total, there are seven things that Jesus says from the cross. And we believe that um, it's not an accident that He spoke them, it's not an accident that they're recorded and God preserved them for us, because we believe that every one of them is profound in its meaning. And uh, God uh, intends for all of these words of Jesus from the cross to shape us, to help us understand who He is better and what the cross means and what it looks like for us to follow Jesus and live a cross-shaped life. And so we're in the middle of this series. I think this morning might be saying four, maybe saying, this is saying five we're looking at this morning. And all of the seven sayings, if there's one you thought, surely there's not a sermon in these words, surely. It, it's in these words of Jesus, because He says just two words we're going to look at this morning, I thirst. I thirst. Words that would easy to just kind of think, man, there's nothing to see here, let's just move along. But we're going to see this morning that uh, there's actually something really profound and life-changing about what's in those two words. Have you ever been thirsty yourself? We've all been thirsty, but have you ever been thirsty, thirsty? Like, we've all felt thirst. Like, yesterday after the shootout, uh, it was mostly kids from age 2 to 12 shooting on me in the shootout. I won't let you know what my save rate was, uh, although I will say this, uh, the only difference between Connor Hellebuck and I is that he let in more goals yesterday than I did, all right? I'm not saying I'm better than him. Because one game is not a big enough sample size, but I'm just saying it's a bit of an open question. Um, 
But after the shootout, I've been doing it for like 10 minutes, maybe not even, and I was parched. I'm like, I need to find water. And so I, I had to leave the, go to the bench and, and just guzzle some water. And that was after 10 minutes. And so you've all been thirsty, and then you went and you found water to quench your thirst. But you ever been thirsty and not able to quench it? Like thirsty, thirsty? I, I was thinking this week of the time when I made the trip about six years ago to Bethel Rays of Hope Ministries in Kisumu, Kenya. I was on a flight from, uh, to Nairobi, and I'm sure I would have been served some liquids on that flight, but I don't think it had been a while because at the end of that flight, I was already really parched. I was just thinking about my thirst and how I couldn't wait to get into the airport to buy a bottle of water to quench my thirst. And so we arrived in the Nairobi airport. It was late, and by the time I got in there, all of the kiosks, all of the shops were closed. I could not find water. And I thought, oh, no. It, it, it was starting to, like, uh, be really hard. And um, so I thought, well, when I get to my hotel, I'll drink. Just a few more minutes, Rusty. And so I had, a, I had a taxi driver who picked me up. He brought me to this, um, I don't know what to call it. It was a half-finished hostel down some dirt road. I was the only guest in this half-finished hostel. When I got there, it was about 1 a.m. They were working on the water pump because it had given out. And they couldn't get it working. And there was no water in this whole building. And I'm already at this point where I'm fixated with this thirst. And I laid there through the night just consumed by this. I've never experienced anything like it. Um, maybe that's in some way the sort of thirst that someone on the cross would experience. We do know that um, one of the ways you suffered on the cross, if you were to be crucified, it would be through severe dehydration. There you are suspended in the air for hours under the baking sun in the Middle East with the heat um, using all of your strength with your broken legs to try to lift yourself just to breathe. Every breath is hard. And Jesus, after hours on that cross, would have been intensely, painfully thirsty. And so uh, it's not a surprise that he would say these words, which we find in the Gospel of John. They'll be up there, just a very few verses. It says later, now this is already kind of near the end of his time on the cross, later knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. We'll get to those words a different Sunday. With that, Jesus bowed his head and gave up his Spirit. So here we have Jesus saying, I am thirsty on the cross. Why? Well, it says... Uh, he said that so that Scripture would be fulfilled. We're not exactly sure what Scripture he's fulfilling because he's not quoting often. Like, he'll quote verbatim, like his other words on the cross. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Just word for word from Psalm chapter 22, which is a psalm of David hundreds of years before Christ that, that when you look at it, almost be, looks like a script for the cross. And maybe, maybe Jesus is thinking of Psalm chapter 22 because it all, David also says in that psalm, he says, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd apparently is just a fragment of ceramic pottery. You know, archaeologists, they, they pull it out of the ground with a brush and it's just a dr like dry as dust a fragment of pottery. So he's saying, my mouth is dry like a piece of pottery. My mouth sticks to, uh, my, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And so maybe that's what Jesus has in mind when he says in the cross, even in, even in, even in the detail of his thirst, he is fulfilling God's plan and how this is all supposed to unfold. But he's not just saying something to fulfill 
Scripture. He is desperately thirsty. And so we're told that there's wine vinegar. Now, what is wine vinegar? I don't really know. I googled it because that's what you do when you don't know something. And the internet always tells you the truth, right? We know that. But I googled it, and, and the first thing that came up, it said that actually in, in, in the first century, in, in for Greek and Roman legionnaires, it was common for them to quench their thirst with wine vinegar, okay? So this was a common way to quench your thirst for the Roman soldiers, so probably that's for them, right? Uh, and, and so they, when Jesus said, I'm thirsty, they offered him some of their wine vinegar to quench his thirst. Okay, so why, why are you going to preach a sermon about it? Jesus is thirsty on the cross. What more is there to know? Well, to understand, I think, what those words mean, you have to understand more fully what's happening on the cross and, and, and what had happened actually a little bit earlier on the cross, which John doesn't record, but Matthew records for us. So it says in Matthew chapter 27 that earlier on the cross, uh, the, uh, yeah, the verses are up there, verse 34. This isn't the first time that Jesus has offered something to drink while he's on the cross. Matthew 27, 34, it says, um, there they, that is the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, Jesus refused to drink it. So he, 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 as soon as it went in his mouth, there was something about what he tasted and he spit it out. He would not swallow it. Well, why? Because later he says, I'm thirsty, and they give him wine vinegar, and he drinks it. But earlier on the cross, he's thirsty, and they give him this, and he spits it out. So what's going on? To understand what that means, you have to understand what gall is. Gall is uh, gall were bitter herbs, myrrh and other herbs, that were an ancient form of a painkiller. So they would give this to someone who is suffering with pain to try to numb the pain. So this was an act of mercy that sometimes they would give to someone on the cross as they're up there in agony. They would soak a sponge with wine mixed with gall, these bitter herbs, and they would get up, you'd suck it, and it would kind of numb the pain, like, a, like an ancient morphine. And so Jesus, when he tastes the gall in there, he knows what this is. It's not that he's like, ooh, this doesn't taste good, because we all know that when you're desperately thirsty, you'll drink your own urine, apparently. Raise your hand if you've done that. No, don't. That would be... I just saw one hand, and now I can't ever look at you the same way again, ever. And I'm not going to tell you who it was that raised their hand. But um, if you've watched Bear Grylls or those survival shows, you know, like, hey, when you're thirsty, you will drink liquid, bitter or not. So why does he spit it out? He's like, eh, I don't like this. No, it's because Jesus knew what that was and what it was for. What was that for? That was there to numb his pain. That was there to soothe his suffering. And so when Jesus refuses to drink it, it's because he will not allow his pain to be deadened on the cross. He will not allow his senses to be dulled or his mind to be clouded so that in any way, even in the smallest way, he would escape or avoid all of the suffering that comes with dying on the cross. That's why he refuses this, because he insists that he will remain fully conscious through this whole experience, and he will drink in, so to speak, all the suffering that comes with the cross. You know, people thought that if Jesus really was the Son of God, if he really was the Messiah, he wouldn't suffer. He would not allow himself to suffer. He would come down from the cross. 
and spare himself. Because look what it says a few verses later in Matthew 27, verse 39, it says, those who passed by the cross hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying to Jesus, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it into three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. I mean, prove it. You're the Son of God, prove it. You have power, just come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, supposedly. Let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, if you really are the one that God promised to send, the Savior, the Messiah, you wouldn't be strapped to a cross suffering that way. You would come down and show yourself that you are the Son of God, and then we would believe in you when we see your power. That's how they thought. You know, there was um, a few years ago, uh, you might remember it, there was a beer commercial for a beer brand called Dos Equis. So I know this is a Baptist church, but just give me a pass, just this once, okay? Um, if you watch TV, you probably remember, they, they, it, it, was, it was a brilliant advertising campaign. They had this guy, this older guy, Ruddy, Dark skin, nicely manicured beard, kind of like mine, but nicer. Uh, and the tagline was, he is the most interesting man in the world. In other words, the most interesting man in the world drinks this beer brand. You probably should too. And so this was their main character to promote their brand, right? He is the most... And then each commercial, it would, it would just speak about some different attributes about him that made him a really interesting, extraordinary individual, unlike the rest of us, ordinary people, right? So a few of them were, um, in these commercials, his blood smells like cologne. He once won a staring contest with his own reflection. He is the most interesting man in the world. He once had an awkward moment just to see how it feels... Mosquitoes refuse to bite him purely out of respect. He is the most interesting man in the world. His treehouse has a fully finished basement. <laughs> he won the Tour de France, but was disqualified for riding a unicycle. <laughs> Therapists open up to him. He is the most interesting man in the world. Wouldn't you want to drink the beer he's drinking? Wouldn't you want to follow him? That was kind of the mindset they had. I mean, they expected, hey, if there was a son of God, a savior, surely he would be the most exceptional, most extraordinary person in the world. He would be different. He wouldn't be normal like us. He'd be way better. He wouldn't be a victim. Never a victim. He'd always be a victor. And so there was something about the cross that was hard for people to wrap their head around and, and had this appearance almost of foolishness. It did then, and to be honest, it does today. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the foolishness of the cross. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, that is, Christ crucified, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Prove it by your power. 
that you're special. That's what they wanted from Jesus. And Greeks look for wisdom. They look for logic and ration um, to be the answer to life's problems. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But it looks like foolishness to the world, Christ crucified, because He is the victim, not the victor. It's an expression of weakness. It's the opposite. The cross is the opposite of power and strength. And yet in verse 27, a few verses later, Paul goes, he says, but God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God shows the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. God chose weakness to become strong. And we see that in the cross, Paul says, So the author of Hebrews, in the words we just heard a few minutes ago, he said that God made Jesus the pioneer of our salvation perfect through what He suffered. That word pioneer, Jesus being the pioneer, that's the Greek word. They don't really know how to translate that. Your, your version might have a different word. Um, it's the Greek word archagos. Arch means the best, top. Archbishop, archenemy, archangel, the top, the best. In the Greeks, they would have used that as a word champion. That's what they called Zeus. That's what they called Hercules. They're great gods. They were archagos. They were the champions. And he's, so he's saying, God made Jesus the champion of your salvation through what He suffered. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus isn't already perfect in a sense. He's morally perfect. But there's a way in which Jesus needed to be qualified to actually be our Savior. He needed to be perfected to play that role. And, and how was He perfected to become Savior? It was suffering. And what was that suffering? We normally think, well, He's talking about the cross, right? That's how Jesus suffered. But, but you'll see even in the author of Hebrews, He's not just thinking about the cross. Look what He says in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity. What is the suffering? It's Jesus sharing in, the, in, in, in uh, the full humanity, full humanness. Verse 17, for this reason, Jesus had to be make, made like them, fully human in every way, in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest for us. He had to be made like us, fully human in every way. Verse 18, because He Himself suffered when He was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. So His suffering is way more than the cross. What is the suffering of Jesus? It's all the temptation and the weakness and the suffering that comes with humanness that you know and that I know. He shared in all of it. Even down to being desperately thirsty. It's way bigger than the cross. And so when we hear the Jesus say, I thirst, 
we see in these words it's a continuation of what Jesus has chosen from the very beginning, which he has chosen to continually share fully in our humanity. Right from the very beginning, and I mean the very beginning. I mean the moment of conception, right? He doesn't come fully formed. He comes as weak little embryo, just gestating in his mother's womb for nine months, born a seemingly insignificant baby in an insignificant town. There's not even a room for him in the hotel. He's... he's you know, put in a manger there with donkeys and goats. That's how he begins his human experience. And then as a boy, he, he's a refugee. His family has to flee violence to, to go to Egypt. Jesus knew what it was like to be a refugee. Jesus was misunderstood by his parents. Jesus knew what it was like to get up early in the morning, Monday to Friday, probably Monday to Saturday, and go to work and just do the grind to try to pay the bills for, for, for 30 years. He was a carpenter. Just knowing what it's like to be normal, like you and me, there was nothing about him that seemed special, not even his appearance. And I know, and I, forgive me, I, before I've used the term sexy Jesus, forgive me if that's just too far. But what I mean is, when you see a picture of Jesus, like we have hanging in a few places in this church, you know, the quintessential images you'll see, he's a good-looking dude. Long, flowing hair, chiseled features, yeah. Kind of movie star quality. Because, right, if the Son of God, like, wouldn't, wouldn't that be what he would look like? He's special, right? And yet, it says in Isaiah chapter 53, which is a prophecy about the one God would send the Messiah that, that Jesus fulfills, it says about him, he grew up like a, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was intensely normal in the way he looked. He wouldn't turn anybody's head. This is Jesus, Son of God, sharing in our humanity. He knew what it was like to live the single life. He knew what it was like to be tempted with all types of temptation. In fact, as he begins his ministry, remember, in, in, um, in the wilderness, he's fasting. He's hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, you're the Son of God. You can say to those stones, turn into bread, and they'll turn into bread, and you can feed yourself. Just do it, Jesus. You don't have to be hungry. And what is Satan doing? He's trying to get Jesus off his mission because Satan knows if he can get Jesus to reject the full human experience, he can make him imperfect to be our Savior. Right? You and I, we can't turn stones into bread to feed our hunger. He could, but he didn't, because we can't. And so he said, he rejected that temptation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be homeless, to be betrayed, to be rejected, abandoned, abused. He knew physical pain. He knew death. He knew it all from beginning to end. He shared fully in our humanity with all of its weakness and temptation and suffering. And it's not that he didn't have the power, all divine power, to do anything because he did. He could have come off of that cross. That's the thing. He could have. He could have fed himself. He could have healed himself. And he used his power to heal other people. He used his power to miraculously, you know, multiply bread to feed other people. 
But you know what? Never once does he use his divine power to advantage himself. Never once. For others, never once did he use his power to get himself out of the full human experience. And so Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus, he would say, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He did not use his divine power and, 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 and attributes to, to, to advantage himself, but he made himself nothing being made in human likeness. He shared fully in our humanity. So the irony is that those people that were jeering at him on the cross, who wanted him to come down off the cross to show that he was the Messiah, it was the fact that he stayed on the cross when he could have come down that made him a perfect Savior for you and me. It was the fact that at every instance when he could have used his advantage for his own gain to not face suffering or pain or temptation or death, he never used it. He shared fully in our humanity to be our perfect Savior so that when he went on and died on that cross, he could be a perfect substitute for you and I who have to go through all of that. He could represent you. So when we hear the words of Jesus, I thirst from the cross, what should we hear? There's three things I, th I want us to hear in those two words, I thirst. The first thing that we need to hear is, in, in the words I thirst, is there is one Savior now for all humanity. There is only one who is uniquely qualified to bring us to God, to give us life. The author of Hebrews said, chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus, for this reason, that is the reason to save us, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way. Not, not that he did. For this reason, he did. For this reason, he had to. There was no other way to resolve our sin. There was no other way for God to be completely just, a holy God that has to give proper justice on sin without destroying us, the sinner. There was no other way for God to be just and merciful at the same time other than coming into the world, taking on humanity, bearing all of our weakness, and then giving his life for us on the cross in our place to save us from our sin and to bring us into restored relationship with God. He had to be made like us. There was no other way. And so Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to be Savior for all people. Paul would put it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, that is the present time that is in Jesus and on the cross, so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. To be both a just God and a merciful God at the same time. 
How can both of those things be true? The only way is through Jesus sharing fully in our humanity and taking our place. John Stott, a famous uh, pastor, writer, he put it this way, in commenting on the relationship between God's love and justice. He says, we must never think of this duality with, uh, of, of God's love and His justice uh, as irreconcilable. For God is not at odds with Himself, however much it may appear to us that He is. He is the God of peace, of inner tranquility and not turmoil. True, we find it difficult to hold in our minds simultaneously the images of God as the judge who must punish evildoers and the lover who must find a way to forgive them, yet He is both and at the same time. And where do we see those two coming together and overlapping perfectly? We see it through the life of Jesus, through His suffering, which culminates on the cross. And if that's true, then Jesus is not just one of multiple saviors. It cannot be. Either there is none or there is one, but the thing there can't be is two or more. Either there is none or there is one, but thank God there is one. Thank God God sent His Son and through His suffering all the way up to the cross, He did it all to be for us a perfect Savior, a perfect sacrifice for our sin, that we might be forgiven and restored to God. And so Peter would say in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he would say, there's now no other name under heaven given to men by which, by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. So when we hear the words, I thirst, and all that was required, all that the cross represents, what we need to hear is there is no other hope for the world. There is no other Savior for humanity than Jesus Christ. And don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save. And that's true. Which means... You need to believe in Jesus. If you have not believed in Jesus, there is no other way to be right with God than to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It means that we who have believed in Christ, there is no other way for those around us um, to know that relationship with God, but, but through um, what Christ has done for them, in which they too must put their faith that should drive us to, to, to believe ourselves and to share with others, for there is no other Savior but Jesus. So that's what I want us to hear when we hear the words, I thirst. There is one Savior for all humanity. The second thing I want us to hear is that there is grace for all who come to Jesus. There is grace for all who come to Jesus. Because there are some people that they, they're not sure if that's true. They know there's grace for some, but is there grace for all? Is there grace for me? Maybe you're one of those people, right? You maybe think there's something about you, the person you are, what you've done, what you're doing that puts you outside of the reach of God's full embrace, outside of the reach of His love and His mercy and forgiveness. Like imagine if we had your life, we just locked the doors, and we had a video of every thought you've ever had and every word you ever said, and every deed you ever did. And we all just sat here and watched. We're going to watch Rusty's life now. Get some popcorn. Everything. What would I do? 
I would slink into my chair and I would crawl out of here. Can you help me up? <laughs> Those muscles ache. I would, I would disappear, right? Because that's what you do when, you're, when you feel shame and guilt. You disappear, you hide. You hide from people. How can you face people? If, if you knew, if you knew every thought I've, like, every thought I've had, every word I said behind people's back, everything I've done in secret, uh, yeah. There would be a lot to be ashamed of. And that shame, again, traps you in isolation and fear, kind of traps you where you are. It doesn't believe anything, it causes you to believe that, that, you know, the die is cast. Nothing can or will be different. But the thing is, God sees that video, right? Like nothing is hidden from God's sight. He knows every thought. He's heard every word. He's seen every deed. There's nothing that's hidden. You know that. There's nothing that's hidden from God's sight. He has seen the movie of your life, of your thoughts, of your words. What does he think? I was struck by these words, which I'd I'd never really thought on before until this week. Back in Hebrews 2 verse 10, it says this, Jesus, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. That kind of struck me. All of the temptation, all the things we've given into, all of our weaknesses, all of our sufferings, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Isn't that wonderful? He's he's seen it all. The good, the bad, and the ugly. When we hear the words, I thirst, and see the suffering Jesus, what we see is a Jesus who is not ashamed to call us, to to bring us in. He's not ashamed of us. That That would keep us from a relationship with Him or to keep us from His love or mercy. One, He's not ashamed to relate to us. Because as the author of Hebrews says, Jesus, He has become like us in every way, tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted. He's walked in our shoes. Hebrews 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way. Did you know that? Jesus was tempted in every way. Everything Everything you've ever faced, every temptation, every suffering, every weakness, he goes, I know. Everything you could bring to him that might be like shameful or whatever, he goes, I know. I understand. Not that he doesn't call sin sin, he does, but it doesn't cause him to go, get away from me. We have one who empathizes with us Jesus understands because he has shared in our weakness. He's not ashamed to relate to us and he's not ashamed now to represent us. As it says in Hebrews 2, 17, he was made like us in every way, human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and might make atonement for our sin. He shared in our humanity to become for us uh, a representative, a mediator between us and God. That's why I'm not called a priest, right? Because the Bible doesn't call the leaders of churches priests. 
A priest is a mediator between a God and a person. They need someone in between. The Bible says Jesus now is there's one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. He's our one representative, and He represents us with mercy, it says, because He has walked in our shoes, and He is capable and qualified no matter what it is that we experience or have done. We know that in Him we will find mercy that allows us to, as it says in 4 verse 16, to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus would say in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I've seen the movie of your life. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. When it says that he shared in their humanity in order that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, Satan, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In what way did Jesus' suffering death free us from fear of death? I don't think he's talking there about the fearing like the act of dying, right? He's not talking about he died so that we wouldn't have to worry about, oh, man, like, like we, we might, I wish I just died peacefully in my sleep. I just don't want to like get cancer and long and suffering and brutal. I've seen that and I don't want that and I'm afraid. I just want to die in my sleep peacefully. That's not the fear of death he's talking about. He's talking about the fear of what happens when we die. What comes next? How are we received by God? And what he's saying is because he has fully shared in our humanity, in all of our weaknesses, and he succeeded where we failed, where we, where we sinned and gave in, he did not. He held strong. He has robbed from Satan the one weapon that Satan has against us, which isn't to kill us or condemn us to hell because God is the judge, not Satan. But the word Satan literally means, it's not a name, it's a title, it means accuser. The one weapon he has is to accuse us of the guilt of our sin. And in his suffering and his death, Jesus has removed from Satan the one weapon he has, which is the, the power of accusation, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. There is now no more fear of how we might be received as we approach the throne of God. We know because Jesus has shared in our humanity and because of the cross that we will receive mercy and grace if we seek it. So that's what we need to hear when we hear the words, I thirst. There is grace for all who come to Him. And the third and the final thing I want us to hear is that God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. The cross shows us that God works through weakness. The things that the people of the world didn't expect. They were looking for things of strength, things that were exceptional, extraordinary. But God works through the normal, the ordinary, the weak. So coming back to those words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 26 to 28, Paul says to the church, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. That represents some of you in the room. Not many were influential. That's others. Not many were of noble birth. That's others. But God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. This is the way God works, right? We see this through the cross and the life of, and the suffering of Jesus. God works through weak things and weak people to accomplish great things, to, 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 to exercise His power. And so there was that time when Paul would beg God to take this thorn from his side, this trouble, this suffering, and, and God said to him, no, my grace is made, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, when we hear, I thirst, we have to understand, like, God uses weakness. It's not just a liability. Weakness is is a gift that can cause us to rely on God more, rely on His power. And God delights to work through weak things and weak people to use His power to accomplish great things. God wants to redeem our sins and our sufferings for our own good and for the good of those around us. He works through our weaknesses And we see that in the cross. It changes the way we think about weakness and suffering. So when we hear the words of Jesus, I thirst, we hear these things. We we hear that we have a Savior who's been made perfect through suffering, a Savior for all humanity. We hear that there's grace for all who come to Him and that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And as we come to communion here in a moment, and, and you're going to hold a piece of bread and you're going to hold a cup, and you know what that represents, right? You've done this before, most of you. Um, that bread represents the body of Jesus broken on the cross, and that cup represents the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. But I, when you take that and look at that, I want you to think about more than just the cross, because the words I thirst show us that, you know, Jesus didn't just become a perfect Savior for us. In that moment, it was, it was that moment and everything that led up to it, from conception to death, fully sharing in our humanity with all of its weakness, suffering, and temptation. And so when you look at that bread, just take, take, take time in kind of our quiet reflection just to thank God, like look at that bread and, and just thank God that He went hungry. Jesus went hungry so that we could be fed. Because this is food and drink, right? Jesus satisfies our hunger and our thirst. And He went hungry so that we would be filled. And He went thirsty so that we would be quenched. So when you receive these elements, take a moment just to meditate on that and to thank God um, for His Son and that He didn't shy away from the suffering and that He didn't drink the gall. Say, thank you, Jesus, that you didn't drink the gall, but you spit it out. Let's pray. Father, We are just so grateful this morning again that um, in your love and your mercy for us, you sent your Son. 
not just to die on the cross, but just to go through all that is that we have to go through as human beings in this broken world, all the sufferings and temptation and weaknesses that we know, God, it, it's, uh, it feels good for us to know that you know, that you don't stand aloof from our pain, but, but you know intimately what it is that we go through and, and that you, you cared enough for us in our brokenness, that you sent your son to be broken himself on the cross and to hunger and to thirst to win for us salvation, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, presence with you, to know that you are with us, not to, not to have any more fear of life or death. We thank you for all that is ours because of the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. We glorify you. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.